It can be surprising how swiftly some public figures can alter their public personas. People seem to willfully forget that Destiny's Child started out as a four-piece. Keanu Reeves was once seen as a dopey wooden actor instead of a great action hero slash human cinnamon role. Uh, Elon Musk was perceived as a progressively minded genius inventor like six years ago. None of those things are true anymore. In recent Hollywood history, the transformation of Drew Barrymore might be the most significant example of this. These days, Barrymore is generally presented as a dynastic icon, a dorky mom figure, and a warm presence in cuddly rom-coms. The first thing I think of when Barrymore comes up is the wedding singer, which I'm guessing is exactly what she would want from me. It's tough to remember that Barrymore spent most of the 90s as a bad girl type who starred primarily in erotic murder thrillers and had a number of public scandals mostly tied to her incredibly messed up upbringing. After sorting out her personal demons, Barrymore consciously made an attempt to change her image just as the erotic thriller fad was dying out, and Ever After is a big part of why these efforts succeeded. I've often felt that Ever After is an underrated film, but that may not be a fair statement anymore. It seems like everyone likes Ever After, at least in my personal bubble. It got good reviews, it made a healthy profit in theaters, and it seems to be a sleepover movie staple among adolescent millennials. Even jaded dudes like me think Ever After is good. And that shit got a musical adaptation, which means that it's ascended to the upper tier of rom-coms. It is also Drew Barrymore's favorite movie of hers, uh, which he's said on a couple of different occasions, so I'm going to stand by that. So today we're going to be looking at Ever After, maybe a hidden gem or maybe something that you've been obsessively watching once or twice a year since you were 13. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. Alright, joining me on this one is Kat. This is Kat's second episode. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be back. And um, we settled upon Ever After because it's one of your personal favorites. I figured I should give you some space to delve into why. Oh, wow. Okay, so I think, like, there's a really common thread in all of my favorite films. They all tend to have very strong female leads in a fantasy setting and a big tomboy streak, which, like, in retrospect, as a non-binary adult, checks out. Uh, <laughs> but I think, like, that's that's definitely uh, part of why I love this specific film so much is because, like, it's, it's a fantasy story. It's the classic fairy tale of Cinderella that I grew up with like all other millennial Disney obsessed little girls but also it turns that trope on its head to have a really like strong feminist empowered intelligent compassionate and like very loudly obnoxiously liberal progressive values preaching lead and that is so different from the Disney Cinderella while still keeping the basic positives of the character and making her an you know outspoken, rebellious tomboy. Yeah, I do remember that uh, Danielle harps quite a bit on Thomas More's Utopia while tap dancing around the whole slavery bit. Yeah, as a child in the 90s, I hadn't actually read Utopia, but the parts of it that make it into the script of this movie sure sounded great. Yeah, I saw the movie before <laughs> I read the book, and then when I read the book, I was like, hey, wait a minute. What's interesting is however after stacks up in the um, competition of various Cinderella movies, some people like to split them, like, between, like, animated Cinderella movies and then live-action ones. Ever After is often argued as the best live-action Cinderella movie alongside the, um, Rodgers and Hammerstein version with Brandy and, uh, Whitney Houston, not the older versions. And some people go to bat for the 2015 Disney Cinderella. 
I like the, the 2015 Disney Cinderella. I certainly don't think it's a better adaptation of the story than Ever After or the, the Brandy Whitney Houston, Margin Hammerstein version, I think is probably my number two. But the 2015 live action Cinderella was definitely one of the best, if not the best, of the recent live action Disney reboots. So it's got that going for it. I mean, I think that's a pretty terrible competition, relatively speaking, but I do think that 2015 Cinderella does share a couple of interesting parallels with Ever After that I guess we can get into later. But first, plot recap. This film takes place either in 16th century or 19th century France. It's a little nebulous. The brothers Grimm, nebulous, answer a summons from the Grand Dame at which she expresses her disappointment in their fantastic story of Cinderella. She produces a glass slipper and recounts Cinderella's actual story. In Renaissance-era France, eight-year-old Danielle is the daughter of the widower Auguste de Barbarac. Auguste marries Baroness Rodmilla de Ghent, who has two daughters from her previous marriages, Marguerite and Jacqueline. Two weeks later, August dies of a heart attack, falls right off his horse. We'll be getting into that scene in greater detail when we get to the thematic bits. About ten years later, the manor is in debt, and Danielle is working as a servant due to uh, Rodmilla's spoiling her daughters and paying a royal servant for gossip to help Marguerite marry Prince Henry. One morning, Danielle uh, inadvertently meets Prince Henry as she tries to run away from his royal responsibilities, including an arranged marriage to Princess Gabriella of Spain. Uh, he gives Danielle some gold coins to keep their interlude secret, and he rides away, but is eventually caught by the royal guard after stopping a band of Romani bandits from robbing Leonardo da Vinci, whom King Francis invited to be the French court's artist-in-residence. Meanwhile, Danielle, dressed as a courtier, takes the gold coins to the palace to buy back a family servant whom Rod Milla had sold and separated from his family. Henry witnesses Danielle arguing with a slaveholder and, after Danielle's convincing, orders the servant released. Henry, captivated by her intelligence, eagerly asks her name. Danielle lies and gives her mother's name, Comtesse Nicole de Lancret. Later that night, King Francis strikes a deal with Henry. He will hold a masquerade ball at which Henry will announce his engagement to the woman of his choosing, or else he will marry Princess Gabriella. Rodmilla then accelerates her efforts at getting Henry to notice Marguerite, leaving Jacqueline resentful. While visiting a Franciscan monastery, Danielle confines in Henry about gaining a love of books from her late father, and he admits that he envies her passion and strong convictions. On the way home, the Romani accost them, but amused at Danielle's cleverness, eventually agreed to take them to their camp, where Henry and Danielle share their first kiss. The next day, Danielle attacks Marguerite for planning to wear Danielle's mother's wedding dress to the ball, and Marguerite retaliates by destroying Danielle's copy of Thomas More's Utopia, which was the last book that Auguste gave her before he died. After Rodmilla has Danielle whipped, Jacqueline treats her wounds and criticizes Marguerite for her cruelty. A despondent Danielle tries to tell Henry the truth, but her resolve melts when he tells her that she has changed him as a man, inspiring him to build a university. They kiss passionately, but Danielle soon runs away. Rodmilla figures out that Danielle is Henry's love interest and lies to the queen that she is engaged. She confronts Danielle about her deception and the whereabouts of her mother's dress and shoes, which Danielle has hidden. When she angrily refuses to produce the gown and shoes, Rodmilla locks her in the house's pantry. Danielle escapes with da Vinci's help and arrives at the ball just before Henry's engagement to another unnamed woman is announced. 
You see, the uh, Princess Gabriella was also romantically interested in somebody else, and Henry releases her from her vows, and I think is one of the more charming scenes that uh, centers on Henry. Before she can tell the truth, however, Rodmilla exposes Danielle, and furious at her dishonesty, Henry rejects her. As Danielle tearfully runs out of the castle, she leaves a glass slipper behind. Da Vinci hands it to Henry while reprimanding him. Jacqueline tells Henry that Rodmilla had Danielle sold to the lecherous Pierre de Le Pew, little on the nose there, and uh, he and Captain Lawrence uh, set off to rescue her, only to find that she has freed herself. Henry professes his love for her and proposes marriage by slipping the glass slipper on her foot. Danielle accepts. Rodmilla is summoned by King Francis, inquiring if she lied to Queen Marie about Danielle. Queen Marie has Rodmilla stripped of her title and will have her and Marguerite banished to the Americas unless someone speaks on her behalf. At this point a princess, Danielle stands up for her. Rodmilla and Marguerite then are reduced to working as laundry servants. As a wedding gift, Leonardo da Vinci gives the royal newlyweds a painting of Danielle, while Jacqueline is spared from punishment, as she has always been, well, at least relatively kind to Danielle. The Grand Dame tells the Brothers Grimm that her great-great-grandmother's portrait hung in Henry's university until the French Revolution. She concludes that while Henry and Danielle did live happily ever after, the point is that they indeed lived. And that's the film. All right, for the development portion, after working on Disney's Pocahontas and before writing Aaron Brockovich, screenwriter Susanna Grant was hired to write a Cinderella deconstruction with a Merchant Ivory vibe to it. You asked me what the hell that meant. Yeah, I hadn't heard the term Merchant Ivory before, but apparently it's the entire genre of films I watch. Yes, they produce a lot of, like, period genre pieces. You are familiar with them even if you don't know their name. Grant turned in a take that scrubbed out all of the supernatural elements that are generally associated with the Cinderella fairy tale and gave things a pseudo-historical bent. She started things off with having Leonardo da Vinci as the fairy godmother and just kind of built the whole story around that. It's a pretty great premise. Yeah, and Leonardo is very, very charming figure in this film. In terms of, like, my favorite lines, it's split between Leonardo and the king. Do you want to deliver the, the good Leonardo line? History will remember me as the man who opened a door. Yes, it's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it, it's got to be that one, right? Grant insists that she did not set out to make Cinderella more self-reliant than usual, and things just kind of went that way. Yeah, there's a... I, I know the next little bit you were going to talk about is Drew Barrymore's personal involvement, and I have a lot to say about that, and I think that also ties into why this movie is so important to me, is that that whole bit about the self-reliance is what Drew... Huh, Drew... To, <laughs> to the script, you know, because like you were saying earlier, she had gone through a really rough childhood and was battling addiction and had a big image problem and was... Had to in, emancipate herself from her parents. Oh yeah, like she had a rough time of it. And she was 23 when this movie started production and was just kind of coming into herself as a young woman and figuring out who she was going to be and, you know, taking back control. And the thing that she's always said in interviews ever since this film is that the reason that this film appealed her to so much and when she read the script was because of the aspect of a Cinderella who rescues herself and that she was rescuing herself by, you know, having this movie be sort of her new identity as a young woman. And it's hard to remember this because I was a kid myself during this period, but Drew Barrymore was super young in the late 90s. Like, she's 47 right now. 
Oh yeah, Drew Barrymore, as Kat mentioned, uh, loved the idea of a Cinderella that rescues herself, uh, that appealed to her personally. She brought the script to director Andy Tennant, whom she worked on with the trashy 1993 TV movie The Amy Fisher Story. I haven't actually seen the movie, but considering that it's called The Amy Fisher Story, I'm just assuming it's trashy. Yeah, the, I think the, the, the thing I think of when I think of Drew Barrymore's like, troubled teenage period is Poison Ivy. Yeah, that one was always on the shelf at the local video store. I've never seen it. It's it's bad. <laughs> I'm assuming it's kind of in the same vein as like Showgirls and Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction, that kind of thing, the erotic murder thriller thing. Yes, exactly. And like kind of like, you know, Wild Things. Did you see that one? It's, I it's did see that vein. one. It's very like sexploitation of a teenage character. Yeah, I remember liking Wild Things as a teenager because boobs. I'm pretty sure that my feelings about it would be considerably different now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tennant's writing partner, Rick Parks, gave the Ever After script a punch-up. His primary additions were making Danielle more of a tomboy, giving her more physicality, and adding a subplot about the Romani bandits, which I don't think they add really all that much to the film, but I, I understand why they were put in there. The subplot with the Romani bandits does help to give a scene for Danielle to show that physicality and that self-reliance. You know, she rescues Henry, and that's a pretty pivotal moment of the movie that, you know, they're in physical danger. He thinks he's going to save them at sword point by fighting the Romani, and instead she uses her brain and saves him without violence. Yeah, that is something I'm going to be bringing up a little further down. While Ever After does have a historic backdrop, actual historians would have plenty of nitpicks. For instance, King Francis did have Leonardo da Vinci at his court, but it was well before uh, Prince Henry was even born. Neither of Francis's wives were named Marie. Marie's kind of a composite of both of them. When Henry himself became king, King Henry II, he married Catherine Medici when he was about 14. And uh, Utopia was published a few years after Leonardo da Vinci died. For her sake, Danielle is loosely modeled after, in all likelihood, Diane de Poitiers, a powerful noblewoman who was Henry's advisor and probably his lover during his reign. Uh, for the filming, I couldn't find too many, like, juicy behind-the-scenes drama to detail in this section. Apparently, everybody got along. There weren't any, like, thorny logistics that they had to iron out. Like, no legal drama. They didn't have a hard time shooting ever anywhere. Or, if those stories were true, they did not publicly discuss it and were able to keep it under wraps. If the latter's the case, you know, good job, Drew Barrymore's publicist. Bits and pieces that I did pick up, uh, a lot of it is the sartorial bits. Uh, Danielle's blue dress is a nod to Charles Perrault's iteration of Cinderella, whereas Baroness Rodmilla, her headdress, was usually in a halo shape in order to imply that she has a god complex, except when she's at the ball where she has horns. You have some things that you wanted to add about the clothing. Apparently, it is way more period accurate than it probably needed to be. Yeah, it's it's funny that in this, like, historical flavored fairy tale, with all those historical inaccuracies that Ryan just mentioned, the costumes are actually really on point. They're pretty good for, you know, the time period where it's set. They are more historically accurate than the Borgias, which is the only other thing I can really think of that's set in that time period and, did, and put a lot of effort into historical accuracy so good good job on the costumes and it's always been a goal of mine to make the ball gown that danielle wears from this movie 
Your description of it made me think of the podcast episode I recorded with Sylvan about Muppet Christmas Carol, where we just went into detail about all of the period costumes, and that considering that they were intended for puppets, way more thought was put into the accuracy than there really needed to be. So apparently that is also true for this wildly ahistorical Cinderella movie. Nobody would have cared if the dress was off. I mean, I would have. <laughs> so I'm glad that they did a good job. <laughs> You're okay with Utopia and uh, Leonardo da Vinci happening at the same time? Yes, as long as the costumes look good. Yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> the primary castle is the Chateau de Hautfort, that is in the Dorgnonve region of France. Danielle's portrait is a riff on da Vinci's head of a woman. So yeah, if you Google that and then look at the Ever After, it's like, oh, it's the same thing, except one of them looks a little bit more like Drew Barrymore. While I didn't discover any behind-the-scenes drama, I did learn that Ever After was shot on Super 35. Super 35 was having a moment in the late 90s. Titanic was shot on it. It's essentially 35mm film, but it puts a larger image in the space that is normally reserved for the optical analog soundtrack, so uh, it can have a, a more sweeping, grandiose uh, vibe to it. In addition to James Cameron using it all the time, he also shot Terminator on it and various other things. This is a preferred stock for Quentin Tarantino. Uh, everything from the Kill Bill movies to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in Super 35. So yeah, if you ever need to play Kevin Bacon with Ever After to something else, I just threw a few bones your way. That's funny how it ages so well. I didn't know any of that detail until you said it just now about how it was filmed, but... Having, you know, as as one of those people that watches this movie multiple times a year, it doesn't look like something filmed in the 90s. You know, it's, it's really ageless. It does capture a lot more imagery than certain other 90s films from that period. And yeah, we're still in a period where we're using film stock and haven't transitioned completely to digital yet. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's talk a bit about the cast. Uh, I guess first and foremost, we have Drew Barrymore as Danielle. I think that, like, people kind of thought that Drew Barrymore was a hack because she had been in the types of films that you were referencing earlier. Those, like, you know, very sex-exploitation, erotic thriller-slasher murder movies. So, like, no one really knew that she could act until this movie. And she really brought it in terms of the dramatic role in a way that people hadn't seen before. And now that we've seen her entire career since... I'm not sure if she really can act or if she's just always Drew Barrymore and just selects her roles really well. Well, <laughs> as Katherine Hepburn put it, if you get to a point in Hollywood where you're a famous big name actor, you're almost always playing your screen persona in every role that you're in. And that applies to not only Hepburn and Barrymore, but, you know, Jack Nicholson's pretty infamous for that, Morgan Freeman, anyone who's a name, really. Yeah, so this was, like, the first time we saw the, like, the new Drew Barrymore, and she's kind of just been being that same person ever since. But I think that was really intentional. I think, you know, she, she was using this film to launch the new her in terms of public opinion, and she was really successful, and everyone loved the new her, so she just kept doing it. And I don't know Drew Barrymore personally, but this does seem to be more authentically her than sexploitation, murder, teenager. Oh, for sure. Like, if you look at her talk show, which I'm sure that is carefully edited, but there are a lot of off-the-cuff moments, and she comes off like dorky mom, as I, as I put it. Yeah, everything I've seen of Drew Barrymore in terms of, like, interviews and tours and things like that and her TikTok and social media and all that, she really just seems a lot like the character of Danielle. So, like, I, I understand why this script appealed to her so much. 
and she got to flex a bunch of muscles that she hadn't been before. Like, before Ever After, like, her main preceding role, I think, was in Batman Forever. I keep forgetting that she was in Batman oh, Forever. yeah. I forgot that, too. Whoa. <laughs> she gets, like, three lines. She's one of Two Faces hench ladies, and that's the best she could do until she re-entered herself as this. Oh yeah, she was the she was like the angel white fluffy girlfriend of Two Face, right? Yeah, he had two gun malls, uh, Sugar and Spice. She was Sugar. Gotcha. Even when contrasted against her later roles in like Never Been Kissed or The Wedding Singer and, and the like, I do think Ever After distinguishes itself because this is also running off the Disney Renaissance princesses where they're trying to not be Cinderella and be like, I'm an assertive and independent woman who reads and thinks for herself. I do think that there's a lot of Belle and Danielle. Mm-hmm. And Belle was very like consciously pushing back against like even Ariel. Yeah. All right, next we have Dudley Scott as Prince Henry. Jude Law and Johnny Lee Miller both turned down the role. I think they both would have been fine, but as you put it, this is the only thing I know Scott from. Yeah, I can't think of any other role that I've seen him in that really had any kind of stuck with me in any way. So I'm glad he got this part because, you know, Jude Law's fine without this role. <laughs> yeah, Jude Law did okay. I think Jude Law's performance would have been perfectly fine. I, I, I think the film would have done well anyways, but... I also think that this is a very charming, likable Henry. I think he has very good screen charisma with Barrymore. I mean, the script gives a lot of space for them to get to know each other and go back and forth and sometimes have, like, Hoxie and Badinage that then gradually wears their walls down. And they are able to sell that on top of having the space to actually do it. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, a lot of this kind of movie or just the kind of fairy tale romance premise, people fall in love so fast without really getting to know each other. And that's part of the charm of this movie is that they they do get a lot of on-screen time together before they develop serious feelings. It feels more real. I think a lot of mediocre rom-coms fall into that trap anyways, where the characters have intense feelings for each other, whether it's they're going along the um, Jane Austen, I hate you and now I want to make out with you pipeline, or it's just the way things go and you're not given enough space to flesh it out, because... Few things annoy me more in a Hollywood movie than having these two sexy people interact with each other and then I don't believe it when they want to make out with each other. You shouldn't have a hard time convincing me that the two sexy people want to kiss. But in this case, yes, the two sexy people want to kiss and I believe it, so good job Ever After. (laughs) Now one of the more consequential roles in this, Angelica Houston as Baroness Rodmilla the Ghent. She really steals the show. I mean, she's just a domineering presence in everything that she's in. Of course, I primarily think of her as Morticia. This was, like, for me, the most iconic role for her after Morticia. And, well, I guess, I know, the Grand Witch in uh, The Witches was also a pretty iconic role. But, you know, she really makes a meal out of every scene she is. And she's just such a commanding presence. You really believe that she's this, you know, god-complex, arrogant baroness. It's, she sells it. Oh yeah, casting her was a layup. Like, everybody involved in me like, okay, well, at least that part's gonna work, if nothing else. Then uh, I wanted to mention Megan Dodds as Marguerite and Melanie uh, Linsky as Jacqueline. Dodds, when we were discussing Ever After in most circles, I believe gets the short shrift. Uh, I don't think that she gets as much lavished on her as the other members of the cast, and like, 
every line that Megan Dodd says is a winner. Yeah, one of the best moments of the film is her having her complete tantrum when she finds out that Danielle's been running around with the prince and then trying to pass it off to the queen as being a bee. And it's just, it's, it's one of the best scenes in the whole film is just, just her freaking out. <laughs> Yeah, Megan Dodd, you knew your assignment and you turned it in. Good work. <laughs> All right, um, one of my favorite characters, as I already mentioned, and very much designed to be one of your favorite characters, Patrick Godfrey as Leonardo da Vinci. I do like, once again, when they're skirting with historical fiction, which parts are real and which ones aren't. Yes, Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa on wood and he carried it around with him for the entirety of his life. I thought that that was a very nice touch. And also, like, him getting the painting back is a nice introduction to him to, like, the, the other members of the main cast. And Godfrey in general is just a delightful presence in this. I haven't seen too many other things that he was in. When I was putting my notes together for this, I was almost afraid to, like, look him up because I was like, oh, he's probably dead now, isn't he? But no, he's not. He's still around and he's active. He would have been a great Dumbledore. <laughs> well, he dodged that bullet. Yeah. He's so, like, benign and kind and wise in this role as Leonardo da Vinci. He's, he's almost like a Merlin figure. Once again, Ever After deliberately steers clear of invoking any kind of actual supernatural elements, but he is the fairy godmother bit, and he does fill that role to a degree. Although, because this takes place in something that resembles our tangible reality, he's reduced to opening a door and giving Henry a talking to. But he does, you know, have a lot of very da Vinci contraptions that the other characters in the film seem wondrous and magical to them because he's introducing these inventions to, you know, Renaissance people. So it does have that feel of almost magic and whimsy in context of how the other characters react to him. But of course, as modern viewers, we're just like, oh, it's just, it's just doing science at them. Yeah. <laughs> And then finally, uh, Timothy West as King Francis and Judy Parfit as Queen Marie. Once again, uh, the, the king gives at least two of my favorite lines. The, um, I will disinherit you and live forever. That gets me every time. As <laughs> solid performances from solid character actors. Yeah, and then the part at the ball when he's like, well, somebody explain it to me. <laughs> That also gets me every time, especially since he just shouts it from the distance. I believe I've been giving Andy Tennant the short shrift in this. I haven't really been talking about how he works as a director. I mean, most of it is just like working light stuff that is very surreptitious and invisible and doesn't call him too much attention to himself. Like, he knows what he's doing and he, he knows that the, the point of the film isn't for him to be like barfing Orson Welles trick camera shots all over everything. He's just framing the actors well. By the standards of auteur theory, that makes him a lesser director, but auteur theory is bullshit. Film is a collaborative medium. He contributes a lot, and I do think that the way King Francis yells out that thing gets a laugh from me every single time. The scene blocking in that is perfect, so big shout out to him and his cinematographer. Release and reception of this film. I wanted to take a moment to talk about a trailer for the film, which prominently features Lorene McKennett's The Mummer's Dance. Now, if you are a Gen Z kid listening to this, there are a lot of weird late 90s trends that are going to be a little perplexing for you, like swing dance music was popular for a couple of months. Another thing is that for a couple of years, new age music with throbbing techno beats was a thing. You'd hear Gregorian chanting with oons, 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 and that would sell in significant numbers. 
And the most prominent example of this was a Canadian singer-songwriter, Lorena McKennett, who did like Celtic New Agey music in the same vein as Enya, but I think a little more grounded and a, a little more authentic to folk tradition. And yeah, she did the Mummer's Dance, which is based on like a medieval dance routine, but somebody did a techno remix of it and it made the top 40, holy shit. And I believe Kat has personal feelings about the Mummer's Dance. Oh yeah, it's a big favorite of mine. Uh, I've also danced in Mummer's Troops, which is a thing you could do, by the way, if you want to do weird medieval English folk dancing. Not even a week ago, I went to the PBD Essex Museum and they had sword dancers. So yeah, there's probably a group of weirdos doing this sort of thing in your neighborhood. That sounds like the kind of thing you want to be a weirdo about. Reach out, you'll find somebody. Yeah, I, I love Lorena McKennett, a uh, big fan. And if you're into, you know, modern spin on like traditional Irish, uh, English folk music, definitely check her out. A couple of months ago, you put out kind of like this um, new agey type of song that you sang on, and it made me think of uh, McKenna at least a little bit. Oh my god, that makes me so happy. That was for sure a huge influence, and I can't think of a higher compliment. So thank you. No problem. Uh, Reviews for the film were overwhelmingly kind. Roger Ebert compared it positively to The Mask of Zorro, which had come out like a couple of months beforehand. He claimed that this made 1998 the year for exuberant updates on well-worn material. Mask of Zorro is on my list. I think that's a delightful little movie that people have unjustly forgotten about. Maybe a little bit like Ever After in that regard as well. I was way too obsessed with the song from that movie, the uh, When a Man Loves a Woman <laughs> from Mask of Zorro. That was my 98 summer jam. <laughs> Another thing, kids, when uh, big summer tentpole movies would come out, the studio that released it would also put out a soundtrack album with a whole bunch of pop tunes that are not super related to the movie at all, and they would sell millions of copies of it. But to this day, there's probably a bunch of them in your thrift store. If you're interested, Batman Forever soundtrack. That one has some bangers on it. Queen of the Dance soundtrack. Queen of the Dance. For a lot of millennials. <laughs> yeah, that was a formative experience for a lot of people. Not the film itself, which is dog shit, but that soundtrack, though. Uh, Lisa Schwarzbaum compared Ever After favorably to the 1950 Disney Cinderella, praising Danielle for being less passive and exploited. And see, that was something coming up in, in the discourse as uh, third wave feminism was in its infancy. You're talking about the helpless Disney princess that needed to be rescued by a man and falling in love with him upon first sight. It's something that Disney eventually started lampshading in their own movies. There's a lot of that in Frozen. I do have some pushback against that. It's not entirely fair. Uh, made me think of a video essay by The Take called uh, Stop Blaming the Victim, Cinderella Revisited. Their argument was that the 1950 Disney Cinderella was a bit less of a cipher than people generally paint her as. Uh, they say that her main strength is that she maintains her capacity for compassion in the wake of both abuse and oppression, and saying that a lot of her power lies in mental tenacity rather than physical strength, which is, I think, something that is present in Danielle, as Kat has already detailed earlier in this dialogue. While Danielle does demonstrate a lot of physical prowess in the film, I do think that her most memorable scenes are the ones where she is flexing her strength of will and compassion rather than just, like, she knows how to do boy stuff. 
Yeah, she definitely tries to talk her way and think her way out of problems in like a very ahead of its time for 1998 healthy way and only resorts to physicality when she has to. Like pretty much the, on the only time that she ever really engages in anything violent or aggressive is when, you know, she's she's fighting off the advances of the lech and she doesn't really have any choice in that moment other than draw a sword on him. But, but she, I... she tries to talk her way out of it first. <laughs> <laughs> I personally think that Danielle's most powerful scene is the one where she, in the very first act, where she's impersonating a noble woman in order to buy back the freedom of the servant. I think that one paints her in the most favorable light in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Agree. Ever After was a big hit. It uh, had a budget of about $26 million and it made about $98 million in rentals. So, healthy profit even after you factor in marketing. While this film doesn't have the most lengthy of legacies, especially when contrasted against other um, 90s rom-coms, you know, your um, Sleepless in Seattle, your Pretty Woman, Ever After does seem to be rising in the esteem amongst rom-com aficionados, and as I've already mentioned, it has reached a level where it got a stage musical. And while Kat was looking over these notes, Kat had no idea that Ever After got a stage musical. Guys, I'm so excited that when we're done recording this podcast, I get to go look up the Ever After musical. <laughs> I haven't actually, like, seen any footage or listened to any of the songs. Might be garbage. That's okay, I'll still watch it. <laughs> A stage musical was initially planned for 2009, not too long after the film came out, like a little over 10 years. With book and lyrics by Marcy Heisler and music by Zena Goldrich, this finally resulted in a 2012 production that was directed by Kathleen Marshall and it premiered on Broadway in 2015. It lied dormant for a few years but had a fairly recent revival in 2019. This was at the Alliance Theater under the direction of Susan V. Booth. As it was definitely popular enough at the time, like right off the bat, that there were simplicity patterns at the craft stores for Ever After dresses because I know, because my mom and I bought them and made those dresses. <laughs> there was merch. <laughs> Not as much as Batman Forever, but Drew Barrymore will take it. All right, and now it is time for themes. Uh, the first thing I wanted to bring up, and probably the lengthiest, was uh, the limited options of women in 16th century Europe. I believe that is a uh, important bit of subtext to keep in mind while appraising the film. For much of human history, women were denied access to education and employment, forcing them to depend on men for basic survival. And this led to, among other things in patriarchy, a lengthy and still ongoing smear campaign about how women were less capable than men in terms of intellectual capacity or to inhabit leadership positions, even though study after study, test after test, after you factor in economic position and and access to educational materials. Women are capable of just as many leadership choices or intelligent decisions as men. A female brain and a male brain are basically the same in this idiom. But you'll still have people to this day claiming differently. And the reason that this is done is because it forces women to depend on men for basic survival. If they do not have a man to care for them and look after them and provide for them, they're on the street. That is Baroness Rodmilla's millstone. She has a title, but she is constantly struggling to just keep her lifestyle and also just keep a roof over her head. 
As Kat pointed out before we started recording, Danielle's father was a wealthy merchant who didn't have a title. She was marrying down, essentially. Yeah, when Danielle introduces herself using her mother's name, she gives herself a fake title Comtesse. Her mom was not a Comtesse. Like, Danielle is not nobility. And yeah, one of the main reasons, say, the American Revolution took place is because a lot of American merchants in the colonies had just as much wealth or more wealth than nobility, but they weren't able to affect legislation in that area because they didn't have a title and they never would. And it was like, well, we do definitely want to keep the uh, strict social hierarchy, but we want it to base solely on how much money you have and not necessarily who your dad is. Yeah, and like in the, you know, the Renaissance for people who aren't necessarily as well versed in this historical period was the time that was really pivotal in Europe where the merchant class became a thing. The middle class, the bourgeoisie came into being that instead of just having nobles and serfs, you now had a middle class of people that were upwardly mobile, had money and were forming a new society and empowering themselves through labor. And that's a nice spin on that. I, I'm a bit more cynical. I just see it as the aristocracy just keeping the lines while maintaining a flimsy veneer of democratic veil on the front. But eh, I'm just bitter, maybe. But yeah, the important thing to notice in the context of this story itself is that, as Kat pointed out, Daniel's father, while he was rich, he might not be wealthy. That was a probably a misnomer term on myself. He wasn't at Donald Trump's level where he could fuck up over and over again and he just gets infinite redos because he's that rich. As soon as he died, the income stopped coming in. And that made the Baroness Rodmilla desperate again. I think one of the most pivotal scenes for Rodmilla's character arc is when Danielle's father suddenly dies. She races up to him, clutches him, and screams, don't leave me like this. Which could be an expression for her genuine love and affection for this man, but also just she thought she could live comfortably for the rest of her life, and that was suddenly snatched away from her. Yeah, this is a woman who's been twice widowed and has two children and now a stepdaughter that she's got to figure out how to keep a roof over all their heads now without a man to bring in any income or protect them. While selling that servant off to slavery and ripping him away from his family was cruel, it was done out of desperation on her part. The Baroness's behavior is never excused by the film, but it is contextualized. Her back is against the wall, and she is spoiling her daughters because her daughters need to marry well, or the family will not be able to feed itself. And that just kind of ties into uh, what I've been thinking about lately. These days, single women tend to live longer, happier lives when they are single. Cis male partners tend to expect women to take care of basic household chores and perform all of the emotional heavy lifting of the relationship. Hashtag not all men, but enough of them. Women often give more than they get in these environments. Even when we're talking about younger men who are more likely to, at least on paper and when asked, explicitly believe in equal rights for women. This is just sort of about how learned social behaviors can't be completely unlearned just by self-identifying as a feminist. You get your classic trope of the guy who has read plenty of theory but still doesn't help out with the dishes. Absolutely. I co-sign that. <laughs> <laughs> Considering that you are not partnered with the cis dude, I do not uh, <laughs> doubt that. <laughs> 
Unsurprisingly, men tend to suffer when they are single. Men are less likely to see their male friends as an outlet for discussing their emotional issues. And if they don't have an, a romantic partner, they do not generally have someone that they can talk about this part of their lives with and often wind up just bottling it up. There's also more practical things. Some of you might be surprised about how many men in your life do not know how to cook more than like two things on their own. So yeah, you have these swarms of women who are leaving men because they no longer depend on them financially the way that women did in the 16th century. And they're just like, well, why am I having this 38-year-old boy who wants me to be his mommy and wipe his butt for him? I see in like lots of articles about this situation, you'd think there'd be comments in the comment section from cis dudes who are just like, not me, I'm not like this, pick me. But no, I don't usually even see that. I, I get a lot of people who are just saying like, have fun dying alone, bitch. Yup. <laughs> and it's just like, no, you're the one who's not going to have fun dying alone. The numbers are in. This disadvantages you. I read something recently about how, like, the crazy cat lady trope is basically men weaponizing and trying to shame women for the fact that they would literally rather spend their lives with a bunch of cats than with a man. <laughs> yeah, sorry, fellas, but uh, you're going to have to give someone more than your mediocre cock. <laughs> I can say anecdotally from the people in my life who have said such things, if a lady is even remotely online, they get a lot of mediocre cock washing on their shores, just to the point where it's numbing. Not to mention that we can just buy one that doesn't come with, you know, someone who's gonna mansplain to us. Well, the reason that rubber <laughs> cocks work is that... <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. Alright, the other point that I wrote down was uh, the relatability of Cinderella. Because Cinderella is one of those stories that's been around for hundreds of years. There are countless retellings of it. While the Disney one, by merit of being produced by the largest children's media oligarchy on the face of the earth, is often seen as the definitive one, it's a public domain story and everyone can do a take on it. You can do one with monsters, Neil Gaiman did. But yeah, if something hangs around for that long, to paraphrase Mark Wade, there has to be something in it that keeps appealing to people, even through generational differences. Whenever something like that comes up, it's interesting, at least for me, to delve into it and try to guess what that is. Yeah, and like I hear a lot of people talk about the use the phrase rags to riches to describe that Cinderella story of being kind of plucked out of obscurity and elevated to high status. And you can say a lot about like the American experience and the experience of American women shifting between the 1950s Disney version and the 1998 Ever After by like, you know, the, the 1950s ideal was marrying well to get out of your bad situation on the basis of your beauty and virtue and in the ever after you know budding third wave feminist as you put it you know danielle's beautiful but it doesn't really enter into the story very much that she's beautiful other than the fact that like the, the lech is leching on her yeah it's hollywood everyone's pretty even the old people are cute yeah but like how she gets plucked from obscurity is the basis of her character her passion her intellect her earnestness her goodness and that's what henry falls in love with henry could have any beautiful woman he wants he's the prince 
Yeah, and those are the things that change, but the the heart of it, as Kat touched upon, is the Cinderella story. Cinderella is a shorthand for an underdog being this diamond in the rough that is able to seize upon an opportunity to demonstrate how special they are and are rewarded with things beyond their wildest dreams for it. That is a very appealing fantasy, and there's a lot of ways through all of culture that that is played upon in various ways. And it definitely like appealed to me specifically the story of someone being plucked from obscurity in a rags to riches scenario based on her own personal ethics and intellect as being the the key out like that definitely spoke to me. Yeah, uh, I think another part that uh, of Cinderella that appeals to people is the I'm secretly better than you angle. And it's like, the people around me think that I'm just kind of this uh, worthless cog in the machine, but I am actually smarter and stronger and better looking than they are. And the people who are mean to me, oh, if they only knew what I'm actually like underneath it all. I think this is not dissimilar to Superman, and by extension, at least 75% of the superhero genre by extension. Like, Cinderella's just like the lady version of that. Yeah, you know, we were uh, we were talking before we started recording the podcast about some of the other Disney live action remakes that have come out recently and touched on Aladdin. And, you know, Aladdin is basically a Cinderella story with gender reversal. He's the, the diamond in the rough street rat who marries a princess. I did say diamond in the rough as a way to sort of like, eh, you want to go there? <laughs> you did. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Cinderella doesn't win by beating up her stepmother or even outsmarting her in most versions of the story. Usually she triumphs because of her kindness and her refusal to sink to the level of her adversaries. It'd be nice if we lived in a world where that happens. I mean, it does happen, but, you know, not reliably. Yeah, I agree with all that, you know, especially those of us millennials who, like, you know, grew up in the 90s hearing all this American dream during a economic boom in the Clinton years. You know, we we really thought that we could grow up to be anything, and turns out that's not really true, but we're doing our best. Yeah, even when I was going to school, uh, the writing was on the wall, and there's this whole vibe of, you know, growing up with everyone in a position of authority saying, no, no, you need to do well in school and go to a good college or you'll wind up flipping burgers, and then you go to school and you accrue all of this massive debt, and then there aren't any jobs, and then you're just like, well, why don't you go flip some burgers? You got too much pride there, kid. Yeah. Bootstraps. But I think like, you know, not to not to get too hyper personalized, but this is my favorite movie and it's part of why we're doing this. But <laughs> this movie really like teaches a lot of good examples of, you know, rescuing yourself and like I don't want to buy in too much to the whole like pull yourself up by your bootstraps toxic mentality that I think a lot of uh, a lot of conservatives tout but like it definitely was an example to me as a child going through uh, personal hardships and a difficult childhood and you know poverty of seeing how Danielle handled herself and how she rescued herself and it was a good example of how to be a good person and compassionate and resilient and intelligent and get your way out of bad situations. Yeah, I mean, bootstrapping is physically impossible. It was, <laughs> the term was coined to be intentionally ridiculous and then to mock the ideology that pushes for that sort of thing. At the same time, there is something to be said about recognizing the things that you can do and doing that. 
I'm definitely not going to stand in the way of that. I mean, the founding principles of Stoicism is that there is almost nothing that you can do as an individual to change things, but whatever is within your power is your responsibility to do something about. Yeah, and even even in this film that is all about, like, you know, her rescuing herself and self-reliance and all that, at the end of the day, she was only able to accomplish all those things because a wealthy, powerful man noticed her. And also Leonardo da Vinci opened a door. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't alone. We all need a community. All right, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there um, any other remarks you'd like to make about Ever After before we close things out? Uh, I think we pretty much touched on everything that I wanted to say. I kind of interjected and interwove it in, into your other topics as we went. But yeah, I think that, you know, this was a really important movie to a lot of people beyond just it being like, you know, a fluffy fantasy romance story with pretty costumes. It really, it has some good messages in it. And while they're, you know, sometimes superficial and simplistic, you know, it's a very shallow understanding of utopia, for instance. Uh, <laughs> it's got more heart than a lot of, you know, princess movies that you could be showing your kids. So I, I really, really co-sign this one. And like I said, it aged well. Like, it holds up. It doesn't feel like a dated 90s movie. At the very least, it can give you a template that you can fill in with your own thing. Possibly with a musical. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time.